because so many people are gone in the summer, it's hard for us to do what we traditionally do in working verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And so we are still preaching verse by verse through the Psalms, um, not in order, not in sequence, but we take one at a time. But it's easier for people who are out for a couple, three weeks at a time to be able to jump back in and not have missed some important sections of context. Secondly, because of where we are as a church, I believe that God has led us to look to the Psalms to provide a voice for us in our various seasons of life, both seasons of happiness and joy, seasons of sorrow and trouble. And we find ourselves now as citizens of the kingdom of God and citizens of this place we call our country, we find ourselves in troubled days. I wonder sometimes for those of us who live in sheltered suburbia, and if we're being honest, sheltered Caucasian suburbia, if we really even feel some of the problems around us. I feel like sometimes for us, one of the most dangerous things that we face is the fact that we live in relative comfort and ease. It's almost as though sometimes we have a force field around us which secures us, insulates us from hurt. In fact, if we're being honest, I think sometimes we suburbanites build life that way on purpose. We do all that we can to insulate ourselves from trouble or even the feelings of trouble. We can buy insurance that will cover almost every area of life. I remember when we got our first Labrador retriever, we actually had insurance on our dog, which is kind of crazy if you're thinking about it. And by the way, our new one doesn't have insurance, if you're wondering. We've, we've wisened up a little bit. I have traveled in many places around the world. God has allowed me to be on five of our seven continents And most of the places I've been on those five continents have not been the best places economically, socially. And it's difficult for people like that to even think of the things that we enjoy here. And I'm not decrying middle-class, upper-middle-class suburbia. Not at all. I think there's a lot of things that we have that we can be thankful for. They are gifts from God's hand. God puts us in the places that he puts us, and we don't have to manufacture sorrow over that. At the same time, because we live in somewhat of an insulated portion of our world, both geographically and frankly, if we're also being honest, chronologically, this this American experiment of middle and upper middle class America is, is a blip on the radar of human history. I wonder if we do feel what's going on around us. The news cycle, which we see around us, seems often little more than that. We get Twitter updates, we see blurbs on the local news. Perhaps if we are news junkies, we will spend some time on the 24-hour news cycle on cable news, but most of us see, feel a bit. We might tweet a couple of things, we might post a few things on Facebook, but really what we're hoping is that the trouble will go away, things will calm down, and we can move on. But we live in troubled days, and as I said to you earlier, in many ways, the lid has just come off to what was always there. Our country is not immune to trouble. This is not the first time we have had trouble. Some of you were alive in the 1960s, and what you see today is basically nothing compared to what you experienced then. My parents were born in the 
early 1940s. Their parents, of course, lived through the Great Depression and the Second World War. They knew what trouble was. It was only about 150 years ago that our country was embroiled in a civil war, which to this day and probably for all of our history will be the bloodiest war that our country has ever experienced. One of the interesting links among those things is a constant, almost an inexorable tide toward ethnic racism. You saw this in the Civil War, despite what historians from the South try to say to us, primarily the war was over ethnic tensions between white and black, over slavery in particular. Second World War, which killed millions all around the world, both in its immediate years and its aftermath, was over immediately the most pressing cause in which the West got involved because of ethnic tension. The difficult years of the 1960s, and of course flashing forward to what we find today, are over much of the same. And whether it's a Gentile Jew issue, a black or white issue, we find ourselves as humans facing the fact that we've got problems. But we are not immune to this in the West. In those five continents on which I've traveled, I've seen this over and over. This is, just, this is not just a white on black issue. In our first trip to Kenya back in 2013, we spent time with members of two of the predominant tribes within Kenya. Back in 2007, when they had a supposedly democratic election, 1,200 people were killed over ethnic tensions between two tribes. And if you were to look at them at first glance, you would not notice the difference. Nearly a half a million people were displaced from their homes in that tension. Kenya, from which we have drawn much inspiration and support Native missionaries on a monthly basis has another election coming up in around a year, and there is fear that a similar thing will arise. I have spent time on the island of Hispaniola, which is on the eastern side, the Dominican Republic, and on the western side, Haiti. The Dominicans and the Haitians are both people of dark color, predominantly, but the Dominicans, though poor, have a lot more than the Haitians and hate them segregating them into villages, not giving them jobs, basically looking them as the off-scouring of the earth. I've spent time in the UAE, which has some of the most wealthy cities in the entire globe in all of human history. But in the UAE, which has only about 25% of the population that are actually Emirati, 50% of the population is South Asian, predominantly Indian. Many of them are segregated into work camps and looked down upon and hated as though they are subhuman. So this is not just a white and black issue. It's a problem of human nature. But brothers and sisters, we have answers. We have answers to diagnose. We have answers to give remedy. I think, by and large, biblical Christianity, evangelical Christianity, those of us who believe in the authority of Scripture, we understand that all these things arise not from national privilege, not from ethnic identity, but from a sin nature. And I think even in more particular, 
We as Reformed Christians who understand deeply how damaged humanity is, we are not just those who have some troubling flaws. We are those who have rebelled against God, who hate Him, who are deeply in rebellion against Him and will never seek for Him. And according to Paul in the first chapter of his letter to the Roman church, left to ourselves, we will implode. Is that what we see going on in our country? Have we finally reached the breaking point? Are we imploding? I suppose if you would have asked people embroiled in the Civil War of the 1860s, they would have felt that way. They would have felt that their world was imploding. If you would have asked those who suffered from the Dust Bowl of the 1920s and the Great Depression of the 1930s and the lean years of the 1940s, they may have felt just that way, that their world was imploding. If you would have asked a black American of the 1860s in Alabama if their world was imploding, I wonder if they would have answered in the affirmative. And if you were to ask people in our world today of certain ethnic identity or even certain governmental positions, if our world is imploding, I wonder if they might answer in the, inf- in the affirmative. Where are we in the span of God's redemptive history? Well, in the big picture, we know we have gone through fall, rebellion, and restoration in Jesus, and we await the renewal of all things, but in the minutia, in the microcosm, where are we? I don't know. Does our country have a decade or Ten or a hundred, I, I don't know. I don't pretend to know. I am not a prophetic voice of America's rise or fall. But I am saying that there are problems and they are not that far under the surface. And it doesn't take that much scratching for them to rise to the proverbial surface. And we feel them and we see them. But brothers and sisters, we do have answers. Not as shallow Christians, mindless Christians, But those who deeply understand the flaws of humanity, that we are lost, we are depraved, and we are far from God. But there is hope because of Jesus. There's hope that the flaws can be undone. There is hope that the rebellion can be ended. There is hope that Jesus is and will make all things new, beginning with us. So we identify with Israel. In Psalm 85, Israel, those who were exiles at marked periods in their history, Psalm 85 may well have been a post-exilic psalm, which sounds perhaps super academic, but what that means is perhaps this psalm was written after the people of Israel came back to the land after having been in exile in Babylon. God promised Israel that if they would follow him, he would bless them. But if they wouldn't, if they would turn from him in rebellion, if they would go their own way, they would curse them. One of the clearest expressions of blessing and cursing was the land itself. God promised that if they honored him, he would keep them in the land and he would bless them there. He would send rain that their crops might grow. He would open the wombs of the mothers that they might bear children and provide progeny for the people of Israel. But he also told them, in contrast, if you will not follow me, I will kick you out of the land. 
You will have little to eat. I will close the wombs of your women. So the land itself became a symbol of blessing to Israel. I think we'll see that as we read Psalm 85 together today. So let's do that, understanding that we are reading about exiles and understanding that we ourselves are exiles. We are exiles in a land where we don't quite fit in. We live in a world that is in hostility against God. As the people of God, we don't quite fit in. And therefore, we can identify with Israel. And if we have eyes to see, we can identify with those who are marginalized. We can identify with those who are not the majority. We can identify with those who feel left out. We can identify with those who fear. So let's read this psalm as exiles. This is the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. They were those who sang together and wrote songs for the people to worship corporately in the house of God. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin, Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. past couple of weeks and now again today, we are working through the Psalms of Lament. The Psalms of Lament, which comprise about a third of the Psalms, by far the largest category of the Psalms, far more than the Psalms of Thanksgiving or praise or anything else, by far the largest category, which, as we have said, is very interesting. It's interesting because God gave us a book, and that book has contained the Psalms, and in the Psalms it's contained this category of lament, revealing to us that we're in trouble. This is a a troubled world in which we live. We are troubled by our own sin, our own personal rebellion against God, our own unbelief, our, our own pride. And likewise, we deal with the problems of universal sin. The Psalms of Lament give us a voice because of those troubles. The lament is not just a grumbling or complaining with no answer. The lament is an address to God. A recognition that we're in trouble, that only he can fix it. So the Psalms of Lament are a cry to God, an admission of the problem, an appeal to him and him alone to fix it, and generally speaking at the end, a statement of faith, of hope, 
that he indeed will fix it. Psalm 85 is no exception to that. Psalm 85 is a beautiful lament because it is a corporate lament. It is a national lament. Israel was unique. Unique because they were the chosen ones of God. They were a theocracy. Though they had a monarchy, they had kings. They were a people who lived under the kingship of God. And therefore, it's not an apples-to-apples comparison with America. We cannot equate the United States of America with Israel. We never were, nor ever will be, a theocracy. You will hear much over the next few months leading up to the election that we are to pray for the healing of our land and that God will heal this land as though we are his chosen ones. That is not the case. We are not the chosen ones of God. Americans are not special. Now, God has given us favor. God has given us privilege. I don't know how else to account for the fact that we have social and economic power, which perhaps is unparalleled in human history. The vestiges of Judeo-Christian faith here, I think, please God, and yet they don't save anyone. And so therefore, we, we look at this psalm, and we can't see it as an apples-to-apples comparison, but there is a comparison to be made, both as citizens of this country and citizens of the kingdom of God. So we are in troubled days. Though we are not alone, our world is full of trouble, and it always has been, and it will be until Jesus makes it all new. Our politicians and people who are brave Facebookers and Twitterers, I don't know if that's what you collectively call those who use Twitter, And I say that tongue-in-cheek because it's easy to sit behind your keyboard, whether it's your thumbs on your phone or a keyboard on your laptop, and tweet things or Facebook post things. doesn't do much good, frankly, in the long run. Our politicians seem to do, frankly, very little good. But everybody, those in government or the populace alike, are saying things right now about what should be done, varying in opinion, sometimes polar opposites in opinion. I think perhaps the biggest problem for all of them, all of us, is that we begin with the wrong thing. Action must be pursued. But until we lament, until we turn to God in repentance, recognizing and admitting our problems and calling upon Him and Him alone to fix it, we have, we have put the cart before the proverbial horse. And because the Psalms give us a voice for every season where we find ourselves as citizens of this country and citizens of God's kingdom, we we have a voice today. And so as the people of God, we begin with lament, a lament for troubled days. This lament will lead us, I believe, to action, but it begins first and foremost with an eye turned toward God, a heart bowed before God. So let's examine the psalm, and hopefully it'll make sense to us by the end. First of all, we may take heart, for our Lord is merciful and gracious. We may take heart, verses 1 through 3, for our Lord is merciful and gracious. 
The psalmist here in verses 1 through 3 recalls the times where God has been gracious to his people. Notice again in verse 1, there was a time when God showed favor to the people by giving them the land. This had happened historically in Israel. They had turned from God, and yet God gave them the land anyway. There were times where the people of God turned against him, and he withheld the reins. But after repentance, he gave it back. And if it's true that the historical context in which this psalm was written was a time when the people came back from exile... It was helpful for them to look back at similar times, times where they had been driven out of the land or suffered from lack in the land, and God had before shown favor to them again. So the psalmist, in a time of trouble, and we don't exactly know what the trouble was, except, again, perhaps they were returning from exile. We can at least be general, perhaps, about that. The psalmist looks back on God's former faithfulness. And asks him to restore the fortunes of the people of Jacob, the people of Israel. Notice here he is both gracious and merciful. Let's begin with mercy. Verse 2, he forgave their iniquity and covered their sin. He pardoned them and he atoned for them. He took his anger away from them. He propitiated, to use a big biblical word, he propitiated for them. His anger was pointed elsewhere. We'll think about that more in just a moment as it relates to Jesus, our Savior. Verses 2 through 3 help us understand the mercy of God. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Because of our iniquity, because of our sin, we deserve the anger of verse 3. But God has averted his anger. God has pointed it elsewhere and given us mercy, not giving us what we deserve. Brother, sister, you deserve, I deserve, destruction. Nothing more and nothing less. Therefore, This allows us to see each breath that we take, each new day that we enjoy, as a sheer and utter act of mercy. The very fact that we are gathered together today in worship of the one true God is pure mercy. Each one of us deserves the wrath of God, which will culminate in eternal torment in hell. And there's no way to understand the justice of hell and its horror if we don't understand fully the holiness of God. God is pure in his holiness and in his righteousness. And any rebellion against that demands pure, sheer justice. God would cease to be a God worth worshiping if he devalued his righteousness and his holiness by overlooking sin. Verses 2 through 3 prove to us that God has given us mercy, not giving us what we deserve. But verse 1 shows a further step that we get grace. Grace is getting something that we don't deserve. So, what do we deserve? 
punishment, wrath, anger, destruction. Mercy withholds that from us, withdraws us from being targets of God's anger. Grace makes us sons and daughters. Grace gives us an inheritance. In mercy, we don't get what we deserve. In grace, we get something that we don't deserve. And this is the beauty of Christianity. The promise that we can not only be promised that we will not receive God's wrath, but we will receive His fatherly love. How is this possible? Turn with me, please, to Isaiah 9. You are familiar with these verses, verses which we often relegate to Advent season, but they are important for us in understanding what God's intentions were in his historical redemption of his people. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. We won't read all the verses. There will be no gloom, verse 1, for who who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This is northern Israel. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. They were marginalized. They didn't have any glory. God promised that glory was coming for them. How is that possible? Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Israel longed for a time when their world would be marked by peace and prosperity. We all have that longing within us. When we see young black men shot, we long for a day when that won't happen anymore. We long for a day when African American parents will not have to walk their children step by step through dealing with, through, with police officers, with dealing with the ripple effects, the tsunami effects of slavery. We long for a day when those who justly and by and large well try to uphold and protect the populace from danger and violence, when black lives and blue lives will not be taken senselessly and violently. We long for a day like that. Israel longed for a day when they would not be oppressed by their enemies. They longed for a day when their own sin and the sin of their neighbors would not affect them so deeply. And as exiles who live in a land as citizens of God's kingdom, we long for a day when injustice will be put down. We long for a day when sin will be no more. We long for peace. But how is that possible? Well, according to these verses, the Messiah would be sent, who would usher in an age of peace and prosperity. But that would not come without sacrifice. Turn with me, please, to Isaiah 53. 
God promised Adam and Eve that they rebelled against him, they would die. And their entire prosperity, all sons of Adam, all daughters of Eve, come into this world, though breathing, dead. What can undo this death? What can take away the problem of sin? The Messiah, who will usher in that age of promised peace and prosperity, but that age will not come without suffering. Isaiah 53, verse 1, Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. When the Messiah would come, in other words, he wouldn't look like a king. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities upon him, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I said to you back and I, in Psalm 85, verses 2 through 3, that God pointed his anger elsewhere. The reason that we need not fear God's anger, the reason we can expect mercy, not getting what we deserve is that God pointed his anger at his son. Sin had to be paid for. He could not just overlook it as though it had not happened. So he dealt with it. And the wounds that we now have, the gaping wounds which affect us to this day, their only answer, the only answer for healing are the wounds of our Savior Jesus He took the wrath of God. He took our punishment. And because he was not ashamed to call us brothers, we we not only got mercy, we got grace. We are restored, verse 1, to fellowship with God. So, we may take heart, for our Lord is merciful and gracious. And this leads us to the second point in verses 4 through 7. We are to repent with humility. So, the psalmist calls to remembrance, calls the people to remembrance that God has historically shown mercy and grace to his people. And therefore, what should they do? They should repent. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, the congregation cries out, and put away your indignation toward us. In other words, you've done it in the past. Please do it again. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again and that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. An appeal is made to the God of mercy and grace in verses 1 through 3. And in the lament of verses 4 through 7, we find the appeal. God, we're in trouble. Israel as best we can tell, had been in exile. They were in trouble. They felt it. We are in trouble. As citizens of this country, we're in trouble. Will there be brighter days ahead? I don't know. Will revival come? 
Will our nation turn to God and lament faithfulness and covenant fidelity? I don't know. If I'm being honest, I doubt it. As citizens of this country, we're in trouble. At least for now. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we feel the trouble. We know we're exiles. We can identify with Israel and we can identify with those both in our country and around the world who are targets of hostility. Who are objects of ridicule. Who are the marginalized. Who are the oppressed. I've said to you at times when we have read portions of scripture which deal with persecution and trouble, suffering, that we probably would read them much differently if we lived in other countries. If you are a Christian in Syria today, you would read this differently than a middle-class white American. I wonder if you might read this differently if you were African American today, and we have some brothers and sisters in our congregation who might do just that. I think about this a lot. Because I will have, God willing, in just a few short months, two black sons. And they will not be milky black. They will be dark black. I've met them. They come from a people group in Ethiopia. It's unmistakable that they're a different skin color. They will look a lot different than their adopted mom and dad. What will become of them? Well, my perspective as a father... Secured in the bubble of middle-class suburbia change? I wonder. I wonder if days are coming in which verses 4 through 7 will be more acute for my family and for this one. We're in trouble as a country. As exiles of kingdom, the kingdom of God, we're in trouble. So we cry out to God. We don't begin with action, though action will come. We'll talk about that in a moment. We begin with Lament calling out to the God who has shown grace and mercy, asking Him to do it again. Lord, will You restore our fortunes? Will You forgive us? I come from a racist past. It was nothing as a young man to tell hideous jokes about black people. I went to a racist college and seminary. One which a few short decades before I went there said some of the most horrific things you can imagine about people of other colors. I'm ashamed of that. In fact, as I neared the end of seminary and began looking for a place where I should go serve professionally, occupationally as a pastor, I I had to get out of the state that I went to school in because I, I felt that acute pinch of latent racism. I said a few moments ago that metaphorically, back in the 1860s in the Civil War, that we dealt with the rock that had been thrown in the pond a couple of hundred years before that as slaves were brought over from the African continent to work the fields of the American South. But we're still dealing with the ripples of that rock that was thrown in the pond And as white Americans of privilege, I think we have to recognize that. 
Many police shootings are probably justified. Many of them, some of them, probably are not, almost assuredly are not. Whether we understand the justice behind it or not, whether we will ever uncover the full story behind individual videos of individual men that have recently been killed, perhaps is not the exact point for us. Perhaps the point for us is understanding that because the rock was thrown in the pond a long time ago, we're still dealing with the ripples of it. In other words, even if you have not told a black joke in decades, we are still dealing with the sins of our forefathers. We're in trouble. Can it get better? I pray that it can. This is not just for black and white issues. This is for other issues as well. The killing of the unborn in the wombs of their mothers. Economic disparity. Religious persecution here and abroad. Verses 4 through 7 fit very much those who find themselves in all kinds of trouble. Where do we go when we're in trouble? We call out to God admitting our own faults. You see, that's where it begins. Looking deeply within and recognizing that the sins of our forefathers still crop up in us sometimes. Recognizing that the poison of sin which invaded the human race still courses in our veins. You've got a problem, in other words. And I've got a problem. But you see... The psalmist understood this, recognizing and admitting his sin and the sins of the nation, and cried out to God in repentance. Because God, in verses 1 through 3, is always favorable toward his people, we can expect him to be so again. That is why the apostle says in the first chapter of his first epistle, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So we repent. We repent of our sins of all sorts. The general categories of pride and unbelief, the specific categories of racism, indifference toward the unborn, economic disparity, as I've already said, living within our bubble and forgiving, forgetting the marginalized, and a host of other things. Lust, greed, hatred of those around us, living for our fame and not for the fame of the one true God. But we are promised that God does and always will forgive. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 103. David says in verse 6, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. That's good news. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according 
to our iniquities. No, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. So I think, brothers and sisters, that's how we pray. That's how we pray this second portion of Psalm 85. Verses 1 through 3, God, you've always been faithful. Verses 4 through 7, we're dust and you know it. And though our sin is inevitable, it is high treason against you. So please, in your mercy and in your grace, revive us again. Show us your steadfast love. So, he's been faithful to us, has he not? How many thousands Maybe millions of sin? Has he pardoned for each one of us today? And therefore we come to him repenting today. Perhaps it's something to your current experience. Addiction to pornography. Unkindness to your spouse. Broken relationships. Greed. Or a host of other secret sins. Or perhaps it is more corporate. A love of comfort. An idolatry of stuff. An indifference to those around us who have been marginalized. Recognizing that the problems of the past still echo forward today. Because God has been faithful to forgive in the past, we can repent in humility. Knowing that he will forgive. And what does he do? Well, verses 8-9. through He gives us confidence to expect his pardon and to turn from our former sins. The psalmist repents in verses 4 through 7. The people, this is a corporate lament, repent in verses 4 through 7. They appeal to God, we're in trouble, forgive us. Then in verses 8 through 9, they wait for it in expectation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. What will he speak? Well, the second portion of verse 8 tells us. He will speak peace to his people, to his saints. These are his holy ones. These These are members of his covenant family. But don't let us turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that glory may dwell in our land. We're looking for renewal, and he'll grant it. We can expect that he indeed will forgive. He will revive us. What will that look like here in our country? As citizens of this kingdom, a kingdom that's in trouble, a country that's in trouble, can it get better? I think it can. I don't expect that going forward that a culture as fractured as ours can expect that the federal government is going to make things much better. I'm going to make a little parenthetical statement for just a moment. I think our president could. One of the best things that has ever happened to our country is that we've had an African-American president, at least symbolically. I don't agree with much of President Obama's policies, not because I'm a Republican. I don't even know that I am one anymore. I disagree with his policies on principle's sake. But I love the fact, because of our ethnic problems of the past and of today that we have an African-American president. I wish that our president would take off his tie 
and roll up his sleeves and devote the last months of his presidency to healing our country. I think he could do it. I think probably only he could. I'm not sure that he will. I think that he could meet with black leaders and white leaders, leaving foreign policy to the wonks, and instead giving himself over to dialogue, to peace between black lives and blue lives and white lives. I think that could be his greatest legacy. Parenthesis closed. I pray that he will. But he might not. I suspect maybe he won't. I suspect that politics course through his veins like most of our federal politicians too much to actually go there. So what do we do? In a society, as a culture, in a culture as fractured as ours, I think it has to be local. I read about an officer in North Little Rock, Arkansas, who every day patrols lower middle class or lower class African American neighborhoods in his beat. And much of his day is spent stopping his police cruiser, opening up his trunk, and giving stuffed animals to little black and black boys and girls giving drinks to those who don't have much money and who were hot, spending time visiting the hospital of those who are of a different skin color but who are sick and hurting. The story is told that this same man had a black mother call him at one point because her son, who had murdered another person, wanted to turn himself in, and he would only turn himself in to this white cop because he trusted him. I love what that stands for. There's not an ignoring of black and white. White exists. Black exists. We are not colorblind. But perhaps in some ways we can not be blind to the differences in color, but we can deal with it anyway. That is to say, we can value black culture. The job of those who we call blue. We can value white culture whatever that might mean. But I think in doing so, we have to honor and show integrity, civility to those who are different than us. But I think it has to be local. It has to be all you white people with your African-American neighbor. It has to be those among us who are African-American with our blue brothers and sisters who, for the most part, do a good job in defending us. I think it has to do with all of us dealing with those who are coming from other countries. Our city has become a magnet for exiles, for refugees. There are 50,000 Somalis who live among us now. Unless you think this is just a white or black issue, on the eastern side of our city, where there is much tension, often it's black on black. Somalis in tension with black Americans. What about those of South Asia who live among us now? Lewis Center in Powell now, Westerville, Worthington. We have many people from India. And they live in our neighborhoods. Do you talk to them? Do you spend time with them? We're comfortable with what is like us. We're uncomfortable with what is not like us. There's an expectation in verses 8 through 9 that God will heal things. But he does it through us. We're conduits of his healing. 
That is why in verse 8, the psalmist says, don't let us turn back to our folly. In other words, don't let us replicate the sins of the past. And because of what we're dealing with in our country today, I'm making the application about that. This could, this could take on a, a host of shapes. If you're struggling with sexual sin or pride or marital infidelity or some other thing, let that speak to you. Don't turn back to that folly. Turn away from it. But because this is a corporate lament, a national lament, we're speaking about the national condition where we find ourselves today. And as citizens, not only in this country, but citizens of the kingdom of God, we have, we have knowledge of why we are the way we are and how it may get better. Jesus is the only hope for this world. And therefore, there's an evangelistic appeal here, I think. What's the hope of our world? It's not politicians. It's going to be local. It's going to be loving your neighbor, whether they look like you or don't. And the best way you can love your neighbor is by exposing them to the gospel of Jesus Christ, both specifically and by implication. By specifics, I mean you've got to speak it. You've, you've got to actually tell them the message. You are lost in your sin. You will suffer the wrath of God if you don't turn from it. But, neighbor, Jesus has already done that for you. So trust him. He's taken your punishment. You may be renewed to him, averting the wrath of God. Oh, and the best news is you get God back. Life can be healed. That's the specifics. But we can show gospel implications. Nobody should have better marriages than us. And I, buy that. I don't mean they're perfect. Don't misunderstand me. But nobody should have better marriages than us. Nobody should treat their kids better than us. Nobody should use their money more sacrificially than us. Nobody should live with more hope in the sovereign providential God than us. Nobody should treat their neighbor, especially those who don't look like us, skin color, economically, or even religiously, better than us. So be specific in the way that you speak the gospel and be pervasive and holistic in the way you model its implications. We may confidently expect his pardon and we should turn from former ways. Revelation chapters 21 and 22. We won't take time to turn there today because we did recently, but I want to put that, that section of scripture back in front of you on the screen today. You'll be marking it down in your notes so that you'll, you'll go back to it. I want you to be reminded that there's a day coming where it will get better. And that brings us to these last verses, 10 through 13. My slide messed up, and no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't get it fixed. But, but here's the, the final four verses, verses 10 through 13. Here's what they're saying. It's going to be okay. We may confidently expect that he will make all things new. That's the fourth point of the outline verses 10 through 13, it will be okay because we may confidently expect that he will make all things new. Will it be okay for America? I don't know. But it can be okay in this assembly. And I think I can say that wherever this assembly scatters to during the week, it should be okay there too. What I mean by that is you are to have pervasive influence on the culture around you. 
Your neighborhood should be different because you live there. Our community should be different because we are here. But when it really comes down to it, we can't fix it. Only God can. And and he'll do it through his son, Jesus. We've already seen that Jesus is the one who took the wrath of God for us. We've already seen that Jesus is the one who restores us to God. In verses 10 through 13, because of Jesus, renewal is coming in fullness. He's making you new. He's making me new. And one day he will make us collectively new, completely. There's coming a day when love and faithfulness will meet. There's coming a day when righteousness and peace will kiss each other. That is to say, this world will have perfect rightness. No more sin. No more lack of civility. No more injustice. No more black on white or white on black crime. No more hatred. No more oppression. There's coming a day when there will be no more pain. And when that happens, peace enters in. A cop can't bring righteousness. He can be a conduit for it, but he can't secure it. Our president, our Congress, they can be conduits for good things, but they can't bring about pure and utter righteousness. Only Jesus can do that. And when that happens, peace will come. And don't we all long for that? Even unbelievers around us who are not followers of Jesus, they long for it. They long for things to be right. They long for peace to come in. Because Jesus took the wrath of God, peace is coming. It has begun, and one day it will fully come. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground like plants in the early spring. Righteousness will pour down from the sky. God will make all things right. He will be among us. His footsteps will be seen. We'll dwell with him in perfection, righteousness, and peace. My beloved, your black brothers and sisters long for that. Your white brothers and sisters long for that. Our country is in trouble. This world is in trouble. It's in trouble because of sin. Jesus is the answer. He is making all things new, including you and me. We are the signposts that is happening. But even we groan, even we long for a day which is marked by pure and utter righteousness and pure and unadulterated peace. Until that day comes... We repent for our sin, individually and corporately, admitting our own faults, waiting for God to make all things new, being conduits of his grace. So we pray for Jesus to come, but until he does, may we be people of repentance. May we be people who know how to lament. May we be conduits of change. I want you to explore that in your heart. I want you to explore that in your family's hearts. What are the latent poisonous sins which lie within you? 
of what do you need to repent and how will Jesus change you to bring change to our communities and by his grace to our world. We are now going to pray a prayer of lament, praying this psalm back to God. So I invite you to pray along with me as we work through this. This is just a suggestion as we have looked at our world today. I've said some things which may have irritated some of you. I may have not said enough for some of you. But I'm just suggesting that things aren't right. When things aren't right, we turn to God. So let's turn to him now. Let's lament together. O Lord, you have always been faithful to forgive your people. You have forgiven me when I've been greedy. You have forgiven me when I have been prideful. You have forgiven me when I have been lustful. I deserved your wrath, and you didn't give it to me. And the only reason you didn't is because you poured it out on Jesus. And rather than driving me away and giving me eternal torment and separation from you, you've brought me back to you. And this causes me to pause in gratitude and thanksgiving. But God, I still sin. We still sin. We're still greedy. We're still prideful. We're still lustful. We're still indifferent. We're still prejudicial. We still love ourselves and those like us far too much. Will you revive us? Will you forgive us? Because you always have, we believe you always will. And Lord, we expectantly wait for you to make it right. And Lord, we know that one day you will make it fully right. We know that you'll come here and you'll make the world new. There'll be no more tears, no more pain. You'll heal the nations. But will you do some more of that now? Will you help us to love those around us who are different? Will you help us to repent of of the ways that we have not loved those who are different and be different in days to come? Lord, please forgive us and please renew us. We pray that we will see brighter days ahead, not just in the hereafter, but in the here and now. May, May peace come back to our nation but, but may it not be a false peace. May it not just be a, a time where we put the lid back on, but all the problems simmer underneath. May you make it better. May the rock that was thrown in the pond long ago and the ripples that are still coming to shore, may you alleviate some of those things. May we pursue peace, not violence. May we pursue change, not through strength and power, but through love. So, Father, as your people, we are grateful that we understand why we are the way we are. We're grateful that you've sent Jesus to fix it. And I pray that in the here and in the hereafter, you will bring change, that you will heal our land, that you will heal your church, and that by your grace, For your glory, many, many people through our influence as conduits of that grace will be transformed into worshipers of Jesus who here and in the hereafter experience righteousness and peace. We praise these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.